Hello, and welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans, such as myself, will hear that a movie is based on a true story. A few of them we know, but most, well, we never really go on to find out just what that true story is. So in this series, we will explore and find out what the true story is behind the movies we love. And guys watching this in video form, um, this is just sort of a test to see if you guys enjoy this format. And if you do, then I will invest in a much better camera and background and all of that stuff, okay? So just let me know. I know you will. The 1996 movie Fargo is described as, quote, a British-American black comedy crime thriller film written produced and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, unquote. And I really don't think that that could have described this movie any better. The beginning of the movie tells us that, quote, this is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest have been told exactly as it occurred." Unquote. Now, in the immortal words of Dwight Schrute, quote, false. But there is a true story that's very familiar. Nevertheless, the movie, after that statement, begins with very cold and white-out blizzard conditions as a car drives down an isolated road. It is pulling a trailer with another car on it. Then it is dark as the car pulls off the road onto the parking lot of a bar where a very typical average upper middle class looking man approaches two men sitting in a booth drinking beer. Introductions are made and it becomes very clear that this is a criminal business meeting. Jerry, who brought the car, is giving it to two men as a down payment. The payment, plus an additional sum of money, is payment for them to kidnap Jerry's wife for a large ransom due to some bad business dealings. Well, Jerry refers to them as personal matters, quote, unquote. The next scene shows Jerry getting home, his loving wife greeting him and telling him that her father is at the house visiting. The family eats dinner together and it becomes obvious that the father has a strong and intimidating personality. Jerry tries to talk his father-in-law into buying some land so that he can build a car lot on it. The father-in-law makes it quite clear that he doesn't really much care for Jerry. Then we cut to the two hired men driving along the road on their way to kidnap Jerry's wife. Now, the next morning, Jerry gets a phone call from his wife's father who says he's actually interested in buying that land, that, would, that it would be a great deal. So Jerry talks to a mechanic at the car dealership to stop the kidnapping, but it is already too late. While his wife is knitting and watching television innocently, she hears a noise outside. She looks and sees a masked man peering through her sliding glass door. He breaks in as she screams in horror. 
The other man comes in through the front door and there is a struggle and the wife runs upstairs and locks herself in the bathroom. She desperately tries to get out of the window as the men bust through the door, only to see that she hid in the shower. What happens next? Well, those of us who have seen the movie know, and the rest, you'll just have to watch the movie to see. If you haven't seen this movie, do yourself a favor and watch it. It is amazing. Absolutely amazing. The Coen brothers themselves said this movie is not actually a true story, but there is a story that is similar, and it's the story of Hella Crafts. Hella Lork Nielsen was born on July 4, 1947 in Charlottenland, Denmark. This is just barely north of Copenhagen. She was the only child to her mother, Elizabeth Nielsen, and her father, whose name I really couldn't find. It was stated that she was a very happy, outgoing child with a vibrant and cheerful personality. She actually loved school, and she made friends easily. As she got older, it became apparent that she was quite gifted at learning other languages, and she learned French and English quickly, but could also understand German, Norwegian, and Swedish. She went on to college in England and then went to France to work as an au pair or a caretaker. As she hit her 20s, she was described as a beautiful young lady with long blonde hair and a fit figure and men definitely noticed her. Hella went on to get a job as a stewardess with Capital Airways and began to fall in love with traveling. Then she learned that Pan Am was hiring flight attendants out of Copenhagen, and she immediately applied for a position. Out of 200 candidates, she was one of eight that was sent to Miami, Florida for training. She was beyond excited for the opportunity. She settled into a small motel near the airport that many employees stayed at, including pilots. And because both men and women would stay in the same rooms, some would have affairs together. It's inevitable. A friend of hers said, quote, She didn't tell you intimate things about the men she saw. She was far too cautious to have been promiscuous, but she did have a few lovers, unquote. While there, she met 32-year-old Richard Crafts, who was also there training to be a pilot for Eastern Airlines. Back then, he was described as scruffy-looking, but that was a look that was pretty modern for the times. He was average height, average build, and didn't really stand out, other than he seemed to have a way with women and dated stewardesses nearly exclusively. Richard was a born storyteller, saying he had once worked for the CIA and said he had seen combat in Indochina. He hailed from New York City, and his father had been a successful Manhattan businessman, and before that, his father had played football in college and was even a World War I pilot. Richard's parents moved the family to Darien, Connecticut, when he was still young and he lived in the most affluent neighborhood. 
Now, Richard had not had a successful run at college and dropped out to join the Marines in 1956 when he was 19 years old. However, he proved to be a talented helicopter pilot in the military and became a certified pilot in 1957. He was then stationed in Korea and Japan, where he was somehow wounded and wound up staying for a number of years, flying for Air America. He returned to the U.S. in 1966. Once he got back, he flew for Eastern and was making good money. This is when he met Hella, though he was engaged to another woman. She understood that he was not going to be exclusive with her, but she continued to date him anyway, though they broke up and they got back together repeatedly for a few years. Now, Hella's friends were not big fans of Richard. They saw how the couple often fought and got back together, and they put no effort into being nice to him. In fact, they could not fathom why she continued seeing him, but in 1975, Hella found out she was pregnant, so they decided to get married. The next year, they bought a modest home in Newtown, Connecticut. Side note, this is the same town as the Sandy Hook shooting. Richard and Hella settled into married life, and they had a total of three children. Then, Hella decided to go back to work, so she hired a nanny for her children, 19-year-old Dawn Thomas, with her additional income. The couple were said to have been earning in the top 5% of the country. But Hella never really saw how much money was being spent as Richard took care of all of the finances and he spent most of it on his favorite hobby, guns and weapons. This is also around the time that people began talking about Hella being observed with bruising on her face. Her friends knew Richard was physically abusing her and begged her to leave him. He would also disappear for a few days when he wasn't working and not tell her where he was going. Of course, she expected and knew that he was cheating on her, really. But she tolerated it because she didn't want to break their family up. And then his spending got worse, and he began buying items other than weapons, such as landscaping equipment, tractors they didn't need, a $25,000 backhoe that, again, they didn't need. He left all of these things like broken down, rusting machines in their front yard, and the neighbors began to complain. So in 1982, he became a volunteer police officer in Newtown, which, of course, was an unpaid position. And yet he loved the work and was known to respond to calls even when he was not authorized to do so. Four years later, he was hired on as a police officer in a nearby town, but he was making just a small fraction of his pay as a pilot. He then paid to go to a very expensive police training seminar and even bought the exact model of car the Connecticut police used and modified it with everything a police car normally has, again with his own money. After this, Hella, she'd had enough. She contacted a divorce attorney and hired a private detective to watch Richard. 
That detective followed Richard around and was eventually able to get photographic proof of his infidelities. Hella began to tell her friends that if something should happen to her, it would not have been an accident. On November 13, 1986, Richard used his credit card and purchased a large freezer that had cost $375, and then he bought a chainsaw. Four days later, he had rented some type of machine that cost $900. On November 18, 1986, it is said that friends had picked Hella up from the airport after working a flight that had gone to Frankfurt, West Germany and back. Early the next morning, their nanny, Dawn, was awakened by Richard. He told her that Hella had left to go visit her sister in Westport and that she needed to help him get the kids ready to ride with him to meet her over there. By 6.30 a.m., everyone was in the car, but Dawn was confused. She knew that a bad winter storm had blown through and that the roads were dangerous. Yet, Richard drove everyone to his sister's house. They all went in. Then Dawn stated that Richard basically turned right around and left. And Hella was not even there. So where was she? So here's where the speculation comes. It is thought that before he awoke Dawn and the children, he had bludgeoned Hella in the head and had killed her in their bedroom. He then put her in the freezer, awoke the nanny and his children, and dumped them off at his sister's house. He then went back home and, once she was frozen, he used the chainsaw to dismember her, then put the pieces in his truck that was pulling a wood chipper. Side note. There were witnesses who saw him driving and pulling a wood chipper on a trailer behind him. Richard then parked next to the shore of Lake Zor. He ran her dismembered pieces through the wood chipper and let them all flow into the lake. He then left, got rid of the truck and wood chipper after we assume he cleaned it, picked the nanny and the kids up from his sisters, and went home. Dawn said he returned about 7 p.m. that night. When they got home, Dawn asked Richard where Hella was, and Richard replied that he didn't know. The next day, she asked, and Richard told her that she had gone to visit her sick mother in Denmark. It was around this time that Dawn noticed there were larger square blocks of the carpet cut out of the floor and missing out of his and Hella's bedroom. She asked about that, and he said that he had spilled some kerosene, and he had cut it out and intended on replacing all of the carpet anyway. Hella's friends began calling and asking about her, and Richard always had some excuse. Finally, on December 1st, she was reported missing. Her private detective, as well as her friends, immediately suspected Richard had done something to her. The police asked Richard if he would consent to a lie detector test, and he agreed. He also passed that polygraph test. And one of the investigators wrote, quote, Based on the polygraph examination and my numerous conversations with Mr. Crafts, he does not know where his wife is, unquote. 
Other law enforcement people were not buying it. Here they had a successful pilot who gave that up to basically pretend to be a cop for very little pay and drove around in a homemade police car. They were also getting a lot of pressure from Hella's friends who wanted to know what was going on and how the investigation was going. So investigators brought him back in for more questioning. They found him on duty at the Southbury police station working the night shift. He was sent from his work over to be interviewed. They asked him if he had known that his wife had hired a private detective and he said no. They asked him if he knew that the detective had evidence against him showing he had had an affair on his wife and he replied no. They asked him why his wife would tell her friends that she was afraid for her safety when she presented the divorce papers to him and his response was, quote, I cannot imagine her saying this. It is completely out of character for her to say this, unquote. Such an odd saying. He was questioned about the pieces of carpet cut out of his bedroom, and he gave them the same excuse he had given the nanny and said he had dumped it in the landfill a week prior to that interview. Richard said the reason why he had been telling everyone different stories about Hella's whereabouts was because he didn't really want to tell anyone that she had just left and he didn't know where she was. It would appear that he had an answer for every single question they asked him. So the private detective, along with the help of the local trash truck crew, went to the landfill and began to search. They searched there for several days through disgusting and rotting trash, but they successfully located the cutout chunk of rug and it appeared to have blood stains on it. The detective took it to the state police lab for testing. By now the media was well aware that Hella was missing, just as the detective told media outlets that he didn't believe Hella had just disappeared. The lab results on the bit of carpet came back and they tested negative for human blood. This of course only caused more questions and Hella's friends kept working and campaigning for updates on the case. The state attorney's office decided they would take over and they began to dig into what Richard was up to around the time his wife disappeared. This is when they discovered that he had rented a truck and a wood chipper, and so on. That Christmas day, Richard was to be served with a search warrant at his home. The authorities found out that he had in fact taken his children on vacation to Florida. So they had the forensic examiner oversee the execution of that search warrant and let themselves in through an unlocked window. They found the house to be in a state of disrepair. It was nearly empty, things strewn about the house, dirty clothes and dirty dishes everywhere. The children had nothing but bare mattresses on the floor to sleep on. They found a freezer, but at this point, the freezer he had stored her body in had already been discarded, so there was no evidence inside. They found his weapons collection, though, and in total... 108 pieces of evidence were discovered and taken. 
The forensic examiner used luminol and found blood to be present around the house. A few of the towels taken in as evidence also tested positive for human blood. The blood type matched that of Hell Crafts. Over the next week, they began putting pieces together and interviewed the man who had witnessed Richard driving the rental truck with the wood chipper and he took the authorities to the exact spot he had seen the truck, Lake Zor. And as they looked, there were wood chips along the bank, but there was some sort of green plastic substance in with the wood chips, along with chipped up pieces of paper. The paper turned out to be some mail that could be pieced together and it showed that it belonged to the Crafts family. Some of it was addressed to Hella. And then they began to find several strands of blonde hair, fabric, bone fragments, and other identified fleshy material. Everything was meticulously photographed. Divers were sent in, and they located the chainsaw that had hair and blood trapped in the blades. Someone literally found one of her toes, then a partial finger, then a tooth, and a piece of her skull. They had indeed found her remains. Richard Kraft was arrested and eventually found guilty in 1989 and was sentenced to 50 years in prison. And Joy, he was released in January of 2020 and is supposedly living in a halfway house in New Haven. He was released with 20 years still on his sentence, guys. So tell me, what kind of person could take their partner who has always treated them with kindness, given birth to their children, works hard and so on, and murder them, use a chainsaw to dismember them, then feed their dismembered parts through a wood chipper into a lake. As much as I dug around, I couldn't find anything that pointed to any psychological profiles of Richard. I am no PhD but I have my thoughts and theories on what was going on, but it isn't my place to really guess. Regardless, someone this cold and calculating, in my opinion, should not have been let out of prison. Thanks for listening. And for those of you watching, thanks for watching this train wreck. Let me know how it went.